Okay, I'm getting wired up here. That means you need to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because that's where I'm going to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're getting down to the very end of our study here on the efficient functioning of the church. I think there's been a lot of things we've learned along the way. I think it's a profitable study. I hope you do too. And yet also I know that uh, we've been at this now for 22 weeks. In case you're keeping count. Uh, 22 weeks. That's half a year of sermons practically. Generally 26 sermons uh, will cover half the year. And that, that means that either we are really enjoying this, or the pastor is stuck in a rut, or um, we're tired and we're ready to move. I don't know what that means exactly, but uh, 22 weeks is a long time to be in one passage, but I know I could do it for longer if you wanted me to. The other day I was, uh, as I, I like to do, I like to print up my notes on my, my uh, computer, and so... I'm working with it, and the computer has a little bit of a problem right now. The battery is no good, uh, so I have to plug it in. But it always says it's at 1%, and it turns itself off, even though it's plugged in. And it's so frustrating to write a sermon 10 minutes at a time. And so I just get on there, and I just about to hit that point that I really want to pound you with or something, and boom, it turns off. And then i got to start it all up again. And things. I hope you're not feeling that way when we get toward the end of our sermons that uh, you say, boy, this is like turn off, turn on, turn off, turn on. Verse 31, please. You'll notice it is the last verse. And I think I found a way to, to spread that out for a couple of weeks. Um, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you still a still more excellent way. Heavenly Father, we love your word. Thank you for giving it to us. What a privilege it is to have it in our hands, to be able to learn from it, and to spend much time in it. Lord, we don't complain that uh, we are given this chance week after week after week, and we don't complain that we have a copy of it at home that we could study day by day by day. But you know, Lord, how we get tired. You know how we can be so occupied with so many things that we forget to spend time in your word. We know, Lord, there's a lot of things competing for our time. And yet, this time is important. We have several minutes here to just focus together upon your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts while we do so. Again, thank you for giving it to us, but also thank you for teaching us through it and and uh, applying it to our lives and changing us because we've spent this time with you. So we pray your blessing on our time right now as we open up our Bibles and study from it. And may your name be glorified, and may we become more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have uh, thank you, or, or I will thank you for your prayers for us for the last few weeks. We've been on a bit of a journey. We drove all the way up to Indiana for a wedding. Uh, my nephew was married. Um, then we moved from there. We went to Kentucky, and I spent a week there. We did. Uh, I was teaching at the camp, a family Bible camp, 
Uh, that was uh, seven messages in this past week, and that was a lot of fun to do. And uh, we finished up there, and we went on to North Carolina for a few days. We finally got to do what we were hoping to do well over a year ago, but we went to see uh, our sister-in-law, uh, Pam's brother, passed away several months ago, and we wanted to go out and minister to them as well. And, and uh, the Lord gave us that opportunity. We thank you for your prayers. Uh, safe journey all the way. That was good, and we thank you for that too. Okay, when you enter into this passage of 1 Corinthians, we have learned a lot. I hope so. It says in verse 27, the paragraph that really we're working with, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Are they not all? They are not all apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? You know what the answer is to all those. No. They're not all apostles. They're not all prophets. They're not all teachers. They're not all workers of miracles. Here's the thing. A simple way to describe this to you, this verse 29 and 30. If we were all pastors, we'd all be up here. There's not enough room. And it'd get kind of crowded and the sermons would be long if we all had to take our turn. Who would sit down there if we were all pastors? It's the same idea if you're, he said earlier in the chapter, if everything was the eye, where would the hearing be? And such like that. That's his question, and, and the answer is obvious. No, everybody doesn't have the same gift. But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you, you a still more excellent way. Now, there are 31 verses in this chapter. Verse number 12, or chapter 12. 30 of those verses are what I call lecture material. 30 of those verses. They are important aspects of the church that you and I ought to know. Paul clearly meant this to be informative, and I say even corrective, in the case of the Corinthian believers. Most of what you read that Paul mentions here, they were operating opposite of that. Opposite of that. Even chapter 13, the important love chapter, which we're going to look at next week, specifically. That is probably best understood if you yell it at somebody. Because that's the nature of Paul's correction all the way through. Every single thing it says that love does, they did not do. Everything it says that love does not do, they did. And I could show you that if you want another four years of this. Because it's all over the Corinthian letters of how they behaved. And Paul was correcting them. Chapter 12, he's correcting them. Chapter 14, he's correcting them. It's all the way through this book. This is a heavier book to read. It's not the one you typically say, boy, I'm going to do my devotions in 1 Corinthians. Because it's a hard book to swallow at times. He's correcting, 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 correcting. And so the nature of this chapter has been that 
all the way up to verse number 31. Let me show you how it works out. I'll just give you a quick view of, of the chapter. All right? Follow with me. Start in verses 1 through 3, and notice the nature of his writing. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I do not want you to be unaware. And then he says in verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. In verse 3, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Without going into a repeat of all that and what that means, because it is, it is on our website, you could go there and pick up the first couple of sermons and find that. Paul says, simply, the church is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. It's dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Even down to what you say and what you don't say. That's pretty powerful. But it emphasizes throughout this, and we've seen it emphasized through this chapter, the phrases, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit, over and over and over again. And that's very important for if we try to function as a church without the Holy Spirit, we can't do it. We cannot do it. Because it's a spiritual thing. <laughs> but as you follow Paul's teaching here, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. You know this. I've come to make this known to you. And so he starts as teacher to present to them in passage after passage after passage. And I'm just going to use a couple of words here as we go to show you how he's been teaching them. Verse 4, now, he says. Verse 5, and, he says. In verse 6, there are, he's just teaching, teaching, very important principles of things they needed to know. But when he gets to verse 7, suddenly, and I'm following the New American Standard here because I like the, the choice of words. He says, but, and I've noticed something in this chapter. Every time he starts a phrase with but, he says, here is the point. All right? He says, this, 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 but, he says in verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There may be varieties of gifts, and there are. But there is one purpose for all those gifts. We all have learned from this passage and from Ephesians 4. We talked about that quite a bit. It's for the common good. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means it's designed for all of us. Our best common good is to be like Jesus. That's what your gift is for. That's what my gift is for. My gift is to help you become more like Jesus. Your gift is to help me to become more like Jesus. That's our job. That's what we're called. Again, Ephesians 4, if you're still stumbling over that, go read it. That's our goal. Ultimately, we're all going to stand before Jesus someday and we'll be perfect. Until then, we got work to do, don't we? That's why you're given a gift. So you can use it to help each other grow to be like Jesus. And then after he makes that main point there in verse 7, he goes again to 4, 4, 4. He starts all the way into explanations in verse number 8, verse number 9, verse number 10. And then he goes to the key truth again in verse 11. But, one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. He gave you a list of spiritual gifts here. 
the different kinds that are in an operation, because God loves variety, and he gets down to it and says, but it's all the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit at work in you. He gives to you the gift, just as he wills. Just as he wills. You don't order these from Amazon. All right? He gives the gifts. And that's what it says here. And then he goes into even more explanation. In verse number 12, 4, verse 13, 4, verse number 14, 4, he's going into descriptions to explain what he means by that. And then he has to illustrate it in verse number 15, verse 16, by using words like if. If this is true, if this is true, if this is true. He goes and illustrates it. And then by the time you get to verse 18, but, and here comes his point again. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Who's the one who set this up? He did. He did it. And that's the main point again. Remember, all the way through this, the church is God's idea. It's not ours. It's His idea. So He has to illustrate that, and He goes back again in verse 19. If this, and so on. He talks about the eyes, He talks about the hands, He talks about the feet, He talks about different parts and members and which are honorable, which are not so presentable, and other things like that. He works all the way down to verse 24, and He has a key point to make. But... Right in the middle of the verse. God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. By the time you get to verse number 27, you probably have seen the pattern that he has used here. He's a teacher. He's walking them through, using illustrations, giving them declarations, and explaining, 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 all the way down to verse number 27. And what you have at this point is this, these, well, I'm going to call them, let's see, seven items are taught concerning the church. Number one, it's designed by God. Number two, each member is important in his plan. Understand that? That's very, very important. Each member is important in his plan. Each member, number three, has his own unique part to bring to the whole. Each member has his own unique part to bring to the whole. Number four, each member has the same purpose in the church. To help bring all the others to maturity to the image of Christ. No matter what gift you were given, big part, little part, it doesn't matter. Your purpose here is to help us all to be like Christ. Number five, no member is unimportant or expendable. No member is unimportant or expendable. Number six, the church then is to have no division. That's his design, right? It should have no division. And number seven, the church as a body is designed to care for each other. It's to be so integrated with one another that when one part hurts, all of them hurt. When one part is honored, all of them rejoice. Those are the passages we've looked at, right? 
I'm just showing you what we've studied in this passage for 22 weeks. All this to say is, you're important. You're important in God's church. You are important. You need to be there. Because your ministry is to everybody else. When you're not there, that ministry is not done. Do you see it? That's why we're all important. I'm important. You're important. We need each other if we're going to grow up to be like Christ. We need each other. And the more we understand this and the more we operate by it, the more efficient we will be in functioning as a church. That's the point of the whole study. Let me say this, because I've had 33 years of experience in pastoral ministry. And I've noticed a couple of things over those years. Number one is that sometimes people get so wrapped up in themselves that they hamper the potential spiritual growth of the church as a whole. It happens so often, and it's so sad to see it. When one person wants all the attention and puts themselves in the forefront in a prideful way, boy, does that hurt the church. Oh, it hurts it severely. The church is not an individual sport. It is not. It's not made up of independent members. We've said this before, but I'll do it again. As a body of dependent parts, we are to be working together for the good of all. There is no room for self-importance. There is no room for self-promotion. That's not what the body's designed to do. I heard a pastor say that pastoral ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> said, hmm. Now, God, in his wisdom, said this, and I'm going to paraphrase, and I believe this is the kind of thing I'd hear. I'm going to put my church together with parts that will resist what I design and people who will disobey my instructions. It will be made up of redeemed sinners who still struggle with their own sanctification and will struggle even more with their role in helping others grow. It will have selfishness and pride and plain bullheadedness in it, which will make the progress harder and appear at times as if the whole project will fail. But in the end, I will see that every single member of the true church, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, will stand before the throne perfect, mature, without spot, without wrinkle, without anything to blame them. There will be no pride, no selfishness, no stubbornness, but they will all look like Jesus and will be the perfect bride that can ever be presented. What I like about that is the fact that it's Jesus who said, I will build my church. And you know the rest of the phrase? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hell itself cannot stop this project. You certainly can't stop this project, and neither can I. This is what God is doing. And so, with all that said, Paul's been our teacher. All the way through this passage, taught us about how the church functions, how the church functions, and how important that is to each one of us, and how it works best. And I think at this point you would say, yeah, he's taught us a lot about that. So, we come down to verse number 27, 28, 29, and 30, all the way down to 31. He's still teaching. He's still teaching. 
Verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. You say, wait a minute, Paul, you said that before. <laughs> yes, he has brought that up before. If we play Greek for a few minutes, which is always fun, Christ's body. You see the phrase? You are Christ's body. Your translation might read a slightly different, but the reality is still the same. The word Christ in the Greek is in the genitive case. And to those who've had Greek before, which I see a couple here, they would say, that's the possessive case. Why is that important? It's simply this. He owns it. The church is his. He possesses it. He owns it. It belongs to him. He's got his name and his blood all over the church. It's his church. It says, now you are Christ's body. There's a very practical response to this, I believe. Several years ago, somebody got the idea that the church wasn't being run in the way it should. I'm going to kind of summarize this as simple as I can. They inserted a business philosophy into the functioning of the church. In other words, there was a concentrated push because even the Christian publishers got behind it. And they started to remake the church in the wisdom of the world's top successful businesses. They said, if it works for them, it should work for us. We've got to revitalize this church. So they wrote books and they did seminars and they did conferences and more books and more guest speakers and more specialists appeared who went about telling us pastors and so many other churches how to do church. It went on and on, and it still does today. One thing they forgot. God has already instructed us on how to do church. <laughs> it's already recorded in His Word. And the reality is, when it comes to the function of the church and the ownership of the church, it belongs to Jesus. It's His body. It's His body. And if the church does not function according to God's Word, then it is not the church. It is not what he designed it to be. We're here to obey the one who told us what to do. It's called Christ's church because it belongs to him. It's Christ's body. And this makes sense when you get down to the fact that God did this, God did this, God did this. Have I emphasized that enough yet in this passage? <laughs> it's his design. It's his work. It's his choice. It's what he's done. And he doesn't stop in verse 28, 29, and 30. It says, and God appointed, and God appointed, and God appointed. And so still, it's what God has done to make the church what it is today. We could talk about all these different places. We, we did earlier in the series, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, the miracles, the tongues, and all these other things. But what you may start to say is, Paul, you're repeating yourself. You did this earlier in the chapter, and now you're back to it. You gave us a list, and now you're making another list in front of us. Remember, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. That's very important to keep in your concept. They were a mess. As a church, they operated by some of the most immature believers you could imagine as leaders. They applauded a man living in sin. Chapter 5. 
when he said, I need a spiritual man among you, you know, a wise man, a strong man, I need somebody there. You're looking at wise as the world's wisdom is concerned. You're looking at strong in light of the world's eyes. You want somebody eloquent. You want somebody good looking. You want somebody in leadership because of their physical makeup or their personality. And Paul says, we need spiritual leaders who are strong. And in case you're saying, Pastor, I think you're kind of in, you know, enhancing this a little bit, read chapter 6 and you'll see it. In chapter 6, he says, We can't even find a mature man among you to judge behavioral issues in your church. We can't find one. One person thought, well, the more we speak in tongues, the more spiritual I must look then. Chapter 14 deals with the whole thing. Somebody says, no, 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 no. You, you have to understand when you're, when you're studying the efficient functioning of the church, it's all about these people. No, it's about God's plan. It's the way God designed it, not the way we design it. It's not based on our opinion. It's not based on our, our likes or our dislikes. In this chapter 12, you cannot really study it fully without knowing chapter 13 and 14 too. Because they go with the, the, the whole attachment here. We're going to talk about chapter 13 next week. And it's very important we put it on the end of this study. But when you get down to verse number 31, this is what's interesting to me. All the rest in 1 through 30 is preparatory for verse 31. Verse 31, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. This is the first command of the entire chapter. Isn't that interesting? We've gone this way and I haven't commanded a thing. Paul didn't have any command till he gets to verse 31. And this is where the application sets in. This is where he, this is the what do I do now passage. What do I do now? After getting such a lecture like this, what do I do? Here, if you're reading the King James Version, but covet earnestly the best gifts. In verse, or in the Lexham translation, but strive for the greater gifts. Zelao is the word. We get our word zealous from this word. To have a warm feeling for something. Or even a warm feeling against something. You know what that warm feeling is? That's not the cuddly kind. That's where your, what we call your blood pressure kicks in. And your face starts to turn red. And you're like, you know that feeling? Of course, you guys don't do that, do you? This is the warm feeling he's talking about. A zealousness for something or a zealousness against something. We have words like covet in there because it's meant to be potent. We have words like envy in its translation. We have things like jealous in here. And you say, whoa, this is really an incredible word. What's it mean? And then down to the root word, it means to boil to become so hot, you boil. To be fervent. So we use the word zeal. 
His application and the command we're about to study together for a few minutes has to do with something you ought to be boiling about at this point. Fervent about it. Let's see what it is. All right, first of all, uh, a good long lecture on the efficient functioning of the church ought to do what? Bore us? Oh, this is hard. Make us lethargic? Move us to apathy? Give a sense of frustration. Maybe you've seen all this, you've been in church for a long time, and you say, Pastor, sounds good, but it ain't going to work. Here's what Paul thinks. Once you see the design that God has for the church, once you have seen the masterpiece and the way he has constructed it, once you have seen how he furnished it and enabled it, and how especially he gives us a glimpse of what it will be, not maybe, not could be, not should be, but what it will be in the end. Because it will be perfect, won't it? Okay. I heard somebody say, okay, that was all right. This is, this to me, reading through this chapter, it, it's like the most energetic halftime pep show ever. This talk is like, all right, guys, this ought to motivate you. What should it do? It should say, okay, I see God's design. I see I have a place in it. Let's get started. Let's do what he's called us to do. You ought to be motivated at this point to be what God intended you to be. You should want it. You should do it. You should seek its application and actively pursue its goal and to invest yourself. That's a big word. Invest yourself in what God has designed you to be. Don't you want to be that? Don't you want to see what He has designed it to be? See, our, our Sunday morning get-togethers are not designed so we could just check them off and say, I've done my duty for the week, and then I go home. When I grew up, a uh, pastor I attended church with, uh, I was a very young man in the church at the time, but every time he'd speak uh, Sunday, being the time we gathered together to fill the tank so we could go out and do what we're called to do the rest of the week. To fill the tank. To get us excited. In other words, listen, we are called to be zealous. Verse 31 says. Zealous about it. We should start to boil at this point and say, we want to go out and be what God designed us to be. There's a spiritual fervency that comes on the heels of this lecture. I want to take you through something here. It's real simple. The nature of this command is powerful. It starts with a second person. In grammar, that means you. Okay? You. It's in the plural. So it's not just one person he's talking to. In Greek, we had a southern Greek. We said y'all. Guess who that means? All of us. There are no exceptions here. There are no loopholes. 
There's no place for you to run and say, hey, that's not me. When you read Scripture and it says, you all, it means you all. Every one of us are under this command. As he writes it, and we take God's word as it's designed for us to take in the year 2022, take it. You, all of you, and then he moves to the tense, it's present tense. And that means right now. Right now. It's not talking about a week later, plan for it. It's not build your way up to it. But he says right now, and matter of fact, a present tense command is continuous. Which means, don't stop. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. You get the words? Keep on being zealous. This is the way it comes out. Again, as I make my students uh, work on Greek this way, I say, parse it out, and they have to tell me it's voice. It's active. And you say, well, what's that mean? That means you must do it. If it was passive, you could have somebody step in and do it for you. You can have a substitute if you want. If it's passive, you could bring in somebody else to stand in your place if it's passive. But it's not passive, it's active. That means you do it. You, yourselves, do it. Don't regulate it to some spiritual elite to take your place. You do it. You do it. All of us individually are supposed to be doing this command. Is it getting potent yet? Imperative. That means it's not an option. It's a command. It is not a suggestion. It's not set on your feelings. It's not up for debate. You love that moment as a parent, don't you, when you could say that to your child. This is not up for debate, right? We use that because we mean it. God said it that way. He doesn't give us any place else to go when we read this word. You are to be zealous about this. That's his command. Zealous for what? What am I striving for? What, what, what am I coveting? I love that word. It's used in a good sense here. I know most of the time we use it in a bad sense. But uh, it's used in a good sense here. It's a powerful, powerful way to describe a verb. What is it we are to desire? Look at the text, verse 31. What is it we're to desire this way? What is it we're to be so zealous for? The greater gifts. Oh, wait a minute, Paul. (laughs) You just created competition in the church. (laughs) What do you mean by this? He just said not everyone has the same gift, right? Yes, that's what he said. Then why is he promoting that word to seek out different gifts? That's the way people look at it. That's why people study it and think, well, Paul's telling them to trade the gift they have for something better. Would you believe that it doesn't mean that? Let me walk through this for you for a minute. He's not telling anyone to trade in their gift for a better one. He's not saying that. He's simply stating this, that there are particular gifts that enhance the ability of the church to grow in its understanding as to its function of the church. Certain gifts give clarity. 
Certain gifts give an explanation of the blueprint. Certain gifts are used so that we can all come to understand and serve better. Certain gifts have a role that way. Not all gifts are designed for that purpose. Not all gifts are. But what the Corinthians eagerly desired were the gifts that enhanced their own visibility. What the Corinthians wanted were the gifts that gave them more reasons to be proud or wanted the attention. And so they emphasized the gifts like of tongues or of healings, the gifts that make you stop and say, woo, or ah, when they do them. And you say, wow, that's so mysterious. How did you do all that? And it creates a lot of noise and attention and, and people who can take that and use it for self-promotion. The gifts were tailor-made for a show, but they didn't serve to help spiritual growth. They didn't teach how the church functions. They didn't create a spirit of cooperativeness. They didn't promote efficiency of the various parts. They didn't bind people together. They separated into celebrities. And Paul says what the greater gifts are. Do you know he actually tells you? He says, these gifts are specifically designed to guide you in the truth and help you follow God's plan better. Where is it? Paul, where is it? Turn to chapter 14, verse 1. I want to show you something. It's real simple. Chapter 12 ends with, Be zealous for the greater gifts. Chapter 13, he's going to talk about the excellent way. Chapter 14, guess what he starts with? Pursue love, which is the excellent way, and yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. And especially, watch, that you may prophesy. Ooh, what's that? That you may prophesy. Look at verse 2, chapter 14. The one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies, verse 3, speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. We won't go through that whole chapter. But if we did, you would find that Paul promotes the gift of prophecy and teaching over the gifts of tongues and healing. Why? Prophecy was not telling the future. Some people say, boy, that'd be great. Then I could be a weatherman. No, that's not right. Um... It's not telling the future, it's forth-telling. If you look up the word, you'll see what prophecy means. It means forth-telling. Telling forth the message. Guess what that's called today? Preaching. Teaching. That's its role, is to take God's word and to set it forth as divine teaching. To teach, to teach, and teach. Why do we do all that? So the church grows up. So the church becomes like Christ. You see in those first four verses of 1 Corinthians 4, or 14, he says, this is the one that edifies. This is the one that uh, exhorts. 
This is the one that consoles. This is what the church needs more than anything else. Because the Corinthians had taken their gifts and used it for self-importance. But the teaching is for other people. You teachers out there know that, don't you? You haven't become a teacher because you want to stand up and say, Hey, look at me. I mean, you really get rewarded for that today, don't you? We know that's a tough, a tough place to give yourself to. It's hard to say, I want to be a teacher the rest of my life. Because the support's not always there, is it? It's hard. Here he says, but this is the value of it. We're not going through the whole chapter, like I said. But he says, what we should be zealous for, chapter 12, is the teaching of God's Word, chapter 14. The teaching of God's Word. We need it, don't we? Yes. And guess what? We need it more. That's why continually is part of that command. What should you be desirous for above everything else? What should you want more than anything else? What should you be coveting if you use that word right? What is it that you should be hot about that you've got to have? The teaching of God's Word. We need it. We need more edification, don't we? We need more exhortation, don't we? Or are you already there? We need more consolation. We need more growth in the church. How many times have I been told by somebody that they came from a church where they were starving to death? They said, I wasn't being taught anything. I was mostly being entertained. Well, maybe you've caught on a little bit about what I like to do here. My goal as your pastor is to teach you God's Word. That's my job. I'm to teach you God's Word. I set, in my best ability, a banquet in front of you. (laughs) I say, go ahead and fix on any part you want. Feast on it. Because I want you to love God's Word. I want you to understand God's Word. I want us to come to say, more! More! Give me more! Give me more! When we start getting that appetite, that's what God wants for His church. The appetite for more. If there are gifts that can help us grow more in our understanding, if there are gifts that can help us to be more in our Christ life, let us want them. Desire them. Encourage them that we may grow up. That doesn't mean I'm going to go out there and say, well, I don't have that gift, but I'm going to get it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, there are gifts in the church right now you should desire more than any others. And that's because they are going to feed you. Feed you, feed you, feed you, so that you become more like Christ. That's what you should desire. That's what we all should desire. More. More of the gifts that make us more like Christ. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. You see it? That's what he's calling us to. Next week, we're going to find out what the excellent way is. Because that's the rest of it. But I just ask you to pray about something this week. I want you to pray about this, seriously. I'm not just throwing out a a homework assignment here. What are you earnest for? What are you desiring more than anything else? If you find a message like this to be less than desirable, 
I want to ask you to do something. Talk to the Lord about it. Talk to the Lord about it. Talk to Him about the things that you have an appetite for. Trust me. If you ask for a hunger for His Word, He's going to answer that. Because that's what He wants you to have. A hunger for it. A desire for it. That's why He's gone through the lecture, folks. (laughs) That's what He wants us to do in response. We hear all these things about how He's designed the church, and now we should say, Give me more! I want to do it. I want to do it. And as he told the Philippians, and if you're not thinking that way, God will show you. I kind of like that phrase. It's in chapter 3. You'll find it if you go looking for it. If you're not thinking that way, God will show it to you. Heavenly Father, how dependent we are upon you. There's so, so much in a chapter like this that we have been feasting on, looking on, learning from. We could outline it inside and out. We can talk about the things that you have designed the church to be. We have had wonderful, wonderful understandings of that from your word. But Lord, it all comes back down to one simple response. And that is what we want in response to what you've done. And I hope that everyone in this room wants to be and wants to do what you've designed us to be and what you've designed us to do that we want to learn more and invest more and study more and grow more, that we might be more efficient, functioning better day by day and day by day. Lord, impress upon our hearts that this investment here in this life, in the church that you've designed it to be, ultimately, ultimately will be fulfilled when we stand before the throne. Until then, we all have a part to play. And I hope that we're all eagerly, eagerly desiring to be a part. To serve well. To serve with enthusiasm. To serve with a love for more. To see God's people grow. To want the Word promoted and explained and applied and lived out. Lord, drive us to this. Give us this zealousness, we pray. You implant it in our hearts, Lord. You cause it to grow. And we certainly want to be part of this. If we're thinking otherwise, Lord, convict our hearts of that. Show us at times where we're more concerned about ourselves than we are about your church. Show us where we should be, what we should do. But most of all, bring us to Christ. Let us see His love and His sacrifice on our behalf and may we follow in his shoes we pray this today in jesus name amen